This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you. It is Saturday, the 28th of October, 2023, and we are going to be talking about spooky stories today. Why do children like them? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. It is the very last Saturday of spooky season, as all of the YouTubers like to call it. We have reached the end of October. I've got my um, my planner sitting in front of me, um, where I've got all of my show notes for my shows from now until the end of the year. And I can't believe that I'm already looking at this spread. I can't believe that I'm already looking at... Uh, the shows that are going to take us up to the end of 2023. After a couple of years of the years going slowly, 2022 seemed to last forever. Uh, 2023 has indeed flown by, and I actually can't believe that it is time for me to kind of start my cycle of um, of calendar-based shows. So friends of the show will know uh, that I very much enjoy festivals. I very much enjoy holidays. It's one of the things I like best about teaching languages is being able to teach the cultural aspects of it. And so when we get to this time of year, when holidays and festivals in the UK really start to ramp up, um, I like to make sure that we mark them here on Saturday morning breakfast show. And so I've got um, of the one, two, three, four, five, six or seven shows that I think we have left between now and the end of 2023. One, two, three of them um, are currently planned to be about festivals. Um, we're talking Halloween today. Uh, we are talking Guy Fawkes next week. And then, of course, just ahead of St. Nicholas, um, right at the beginning of December, we will be talking about uh, St. Nicholas's Day, Krampus, Père all of that sort of thing. So I'm really excited. I love this time of year. I do. Um, I talk about this quite a lot on the show. My um, my anxiety and depression tends to get worse during the summer. Um, well, that no, that's not fair. That's not fair. I tend to think of them as getting worse during the summer, but in fact, they get worse when it is hot and sunny. Um, and that can occur kind of at any time. I find, I find that kind of weather to be oppressive. And so when we come into, um, what Tim has just texted in and referred to as the Burr months, 
Um, I like that when it changes, it gets darker. I'm one of those people, I like waking up in the dark. I like going to work in the dark. I like coming home in the dark. Um, it just feels more uh, natural to me than perpetual sunlight. Um, so I really like, I really like this time of year. I really like the celebrations that we have. I really like the things that we mark. I really like that we kind of get in touch with the the spookier side of human nature. And that's kind of what we are going to be talking about today. The, the crux of my show today is why children like scary stories. Why do children like to be scared? Why do adults like to be scared? Why are horror movies so popular? Um, so across the show today, we are going to explore that. I've done some reading, um, as I always do. I've done one of my shallow dives into the psychology of horror, which has been very interesting. Um, we are going to listen to some spooky stories, which is always a good time. And if you have anything that you would like to add, then please do as Tim has done. Uh, if you are listening live via the Podbean app, you can text in. Um, if you are listening live elsewhere, you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. That's all one word, M-I-D-L-E-S-T-E-R. And I will respond to your tweets in, in real time. If you are listening to this on playback, you can still interact. Because as I always say, the stuff that I talk about here at breakfast time on a Saturday is the stuff that interests me. Um, it's the stuff that I like to talk about. So just because a show is from a year two years ago, however long, you know, in the future you may be listening to this. Um, as long as my Twitter, my Twitter account still exists, um, I will be more than happy to engage on this topic. So do get in touch. Let me know what you think about, about scary stories. Let me know what you think about the horror genre in general and whether you think that these sorts of things are appropriate for children, because that is kind of what we will be getting into today. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A record number of students from disadvantaged backgrounds have applied for the most selective UK university degrees, says a report on the BBC News website. The report is based on data released by the Universities and Colleges Admissions Service, known as UCAS. 
the students have applied to Oxford and Cambridge and for degrees in medicine, dentistry and veterinary science. UCAS Interim Chief Executive Sander Crystal described the applications, which have an October deadline, as encouraging. The Sutton Trust charity, however, said that the advantage gap had hardly shifted. The data is based on a participation of local areas measure, which splits students into five groups based on how many people aged 18 and 19 in their area go on to higher education. Those from areas where the fewest numbers of young people go to university are classed as the most disadvantaged. Applications for this group are up by 7% since last year, in contrast to the most advantaged areas, which is up by only 2%. However, the total number of applicants from the most advantaged areas is over 17,000, compared to a little over 3,000 from the most disadvantaged areas. Other key findings from October applications include a 6% increase in the number of UK applicants receiving free school meals, although the overall numbers of those receiving free meals is on the rise. A drop of 7% a year in 18-year-olds applying to medicine degrees and a slight drop in total numbers of international applicants. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan was in the news again this week as she told English schools that parents have a right to view the sex education materials which are being taught in schools. The announcement comes as the government is due to launch a public consultation into relationships, sex and health education. Guidance has been in place since the subject became compulsory in primary and secondary schools in September 2020. But Miss Keegan said she wanted to debunk the myth that parents cannot see what their children are being taught. Jeff Barton of Askell said he agreed with transparency on RSHE materials and that this is key, but that sending the letter when some schools were on half term was slightly odd. The BBC also reports that Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has been accused of misleading the public about the risks of social media and of contributing to a mental health crisis amongst youth. The claims were made in a federal lawsuit in the United States, but many in other countries will be following with interest. The lawsuit accuses the company of ensnaring users whilst concealing the substantial dangers of its platforms. It also said that the company had collected data on children under the age of 13 and that this breached the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Meta is contesting the lawsuit and will likely present research it says shows that teens say social media actually helps them when they are struggling. It's not the first time social media companies have faced lawsuits, but it is the first time so many attorneys general, 33 in total, have signed such a suit. In addition to those already filed by families, young people and school districts. Those working with children and young people in the UK will undoubtedly be interested in the progress of the lawsuit. Dyslexia Scotland has announced on its website that former Strictly Come Dancing winner and Dyslexia Scotland ambassador Hamza Yassin will talk to an audience as part of Dyslexia Awareness Week Scotland. Yassin, who is dyslexic, became an ambassador for the charity earlier this year. He says he is passionate about sharing his story during events held in the first week in November. In a week where The Guardian reports that more than one million UK children experienced destitution last year, meaning their families could not adequately feed, clothe, clean or keep them warm, 
The BBC covered a story of a primary school in Peckham where most children are homeless. The school has nearly 300 pupils, all of whom receive free uniform, trips and meals. The school conducted a survey in which most families describe themselves as living in non-secure tenancies. This can mean sofa surfing with friends, living in B&B accommodation or living in hostels. Parents of children at the school spoke positively about the support they received from the school, but also focused on the toll the uncertainty took on them and their children. Meanwhile, The Guardian tells of concerns expressed by poverty campaigners, teachers and welfare workers about the damaging effects of destitution, including physical ill health, mental illness, school absence and poor behaviour. Both articles can be found online and give more details on the latest findings. Finally, Schools Week reports that as many as one in 10 school workers had to wait over 60 days for DBS checks last year. A Freedom of Information request showed that 2.5% of those submitted took more than 60 days to complete, more than triple the rate in 2021 to 22. Jeff Barton of Askell says it all adds to the pressure that school leaders and teachers face in recruitment and reflects the widespread underinvestment in public services. A spokesperson for the DBS said neither Ofsted nor the DFE have raised any concerns about delays. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. I love the fact that Ofsted and the DFE are being cited as the authorities who ought to be concerned if there are delays and not the head teachers of schools who are going understaffed um, or who are having to manage supervision of staff whose um, DBS checks have not yet come through. When safeguarding is so important and when we make such a big deal about ensuring that all teachers, all um, members of school staff who work with children are appropriately safeguarded, when we make sure that speakers who come into schools are checked and followed safeguarding procedures, all of that sort of thing. When we in schools are doing everything that we can to keep our children safe in education, if you will um, forgive the bad pun there, it is horrifying to think that schools are not the ones being taken seriously when we are saying that there is a problem, um, that these agencies are waiting for people higher up the chain, people that they deem to be, I don't know, more important than us um, to raise an issue when in fact we are the ones who are on the ground keeping our children safe. So yeah, I think that's a shame. I think that is a shame. Uh, before we get into the meat of our show, a quick public service announcement, as I have been reminded by Tim this morning. A very good morning to you. Um, but in um, England, in, in the UK, this weekend, our clocks do go back. So please do remember that um, overnight, the time should change and we go backwards one hour. Uh, spring forward, fall back, as we like to say. That does also mean to our international listeners, if either you do not observe any kind of daylight savings or your time change doesn't occur for another week or so, um, then the TTR shows will be an hour out 
compared to what you are used to. So if you are somewhere that is not changing their clocks backwards this weekend, but you are a fan of Saturday morning breakfast, then um, then from next week until your time does change or until our time changes back in the spring, uh, we will be running an hour earlier than you are used to. So that is just a quick, um, a quick reminder there. And thank you, Tim, for reminding me, because these days where we don't actually need to manually change the clocks, it can be quite easy to forget. Um, I think in my whole house, there is only one clock that needs to be changed um, manually. Everything else I just kind of trust to do itself, which does always make for quite a, a surreal first thing in the morning on clock change day where you check the time and then you're not actually sure whether or not your phone, computer, um, smart device, whatever, whatever it is that you check the time on has in fact changed. Um, so that's when good old Google, what time is it, always comes in handy. We are talking about spooky stories. We are talking about scary stories. We are talking about ghost stories. Now, it will come as no surprise because I spent some time at the top of the show talking about how much I like to embrace um, embrace the seasons, embrace the festivals, that I've been trying really hard this year to kind of lean into Halloween. Now, normally, I am very much a Christmas person. Um, normally, I start celebrating Christmas during the summer holidays. I am one of those people. Um, and while I have... Um, started my Christmas shopping. Uh, I did start that during the summer when there were some sales going on for things that I think people in my life would like. I have not yet watched any Christmas films, which is quite unusual for me, because instead I've been trying to lean into the spooky. I've been trying to watch more, not outright horror, because I'm not actually a big fan of, of genuine gory horror. But I have been trying to watch more um, horror comedies. Um, I watched Totally Killer on Amazon Prime at the uh, on the advice actually of Tim. He recommended it to me. Um, I've actually now watched it twice, and it was very funny. It was very good. Um, and also, kind of young adult and middle grade horror, kind of spooky things. That's the kind of horror that I like, horror that isn't scary. Um, so I, I watched the new Goosebumps show on, is that Disney Plus? I think that was Disney Plus. And I enjoyed that very much. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to make of it. Um, having been a, a Goosebumps kid, I was lucky enough to grow up when Scholastic was pumping out all of their monthly series. So, you know, I read Goosebumps, I read Animorphs. Um, all of those things where you would get a new book every month. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I do kind of, although we all know that the quality of those series um, is is flexible, let's say, because, of course, when a writer and when ghostwriters are trying to pump out a book every month in a series, it is going to be of variable quality. Um I do I do like those books. I kind of miss those days where you had a series that was a good 50 books long um, and you had a new one every month to look forward to. Of course, these days, I wouldn't be able to afford that. <laughs> I don't think it's in my budget to buy a new book every single month um, as much as I would like to. Or in fact, multiple, if you are following multiple series. Um, 
it makes me wonder whether back in the day books were in fact cheaper um and so these kind of not pulp books because they're not true pulp fiction but whether the scholastic books maybe were produced a bit more cheaply and so could be sold a bit more cheaply so that parents could afford to or whether comparatively it was the same as now and um, my parents were just very generous in which case thank you very much um so yeah i wasn't sure how would how i would feel about goosebumps having been a big fan of the books when when i was a kid i'm a big fan of the original tv show um that aired on nickelodeon here in the uk but i liked it i liked it a lot um i liked how it took the standalone stories i will i won't spoil so don't worry if you haven't seen it yet but i like how it took the standalone stories and it made each episode standalone whilst also having an overarching storyline i think it was um I think it was very well done. And I'm assuming that there will be a part two. I'm assuming that what we've got wasn't the whole of the first series. Um, I'm assuming there will be a part two. Or if that was the whole of the first series, I'm assuming that there will be a second series, um, which I am I am very much looking forward to. But that got me thinking uh, as I was watching it about why I liked Goosebumps when I was a kid. Why... Um, why do the kind of, in inverted commas, childish, why do the middle grade and the young adult scary stories kind of still appeal to me now? Now, as a teacher, I am in two minds about using scary stories in my classroom. When I was a primary school teacher, I didn't. Um, if it came up in our guided reading scheme, then I would use it. But if it were just for kind of story time at the end of the day, or for a French lesson or a Japanese lesson, I, I wouldn't use spooky stories because I was always vaguely afraid of what parental reaction would be. And so I always chose to play it safe. There were scary books on my classroom bookshelf. And of course, scary is relative so i'm talking you know scary for year four year five year six not the exorcist um because i always felt that if a child chose those books then that was a a conversation between the parent and the child and i wasn't pushing that on anybody whereas if i had chosen a scary story for for story time then i would be pushing that on the children and if there were any particularly sensitive children in the class then there would be that pushback and yeah i was i guess because i was a relatively new teacher when i was a primary school teacher i was scared of that mm, is scared the right word worried let's say i was worried about that um because i never wanted a parent to feel like their child was being um, w was being afraid to be in my classroom. So I just kind of ignored it. Now, um, and, and as friends of the show will know, I teach right through these days. So my school goes from nursery up to year 13. Um, and I'm very lucky each year to be able to dip in, in and out of um, all of those year groups 
across the the different things that I teach. Um, I'm not so afraid of using scary stories. And in fact, one of my favorite things that I do in year nine French is my Gothic stories module um, at the very end of the year, kind of after the year nine exams are done and they've made their option choices and some of them are carrying on with French and some of them are not. And, and we all know that that's a very difficult time to, to kind of manage lessons because we want to make sure that those who are carrying on with our subject, and this applies to everybody, not just languages, we want to make sure that those who are carrying on are actually learning something, that they are not um, kind of wasting valuable time before they go into the start of the GCSE course, or in my case, the continuation, because we run a three-year GCSE um, in my school. And then you also want to make sure that the kids who are not carrying on with your subject don't kind of opt out and, and start to, to misbehave. And you want to make sure that they're not bored and you want to make sure that they're not wasting their time. Because we all know that, that school time is, is precious, school time is valuable, and none of us want to feel like it's being wasted. So I like to use my Gothic stories. It is a scheme of work. Um, it's an adaptation of the um, Brocéliande myths from, from France. And it's a really good way to get all the kids engaged. I find that <clears throat> every year with my year nines, regardless of where they are on the maturity scale, um, they are all engrossed by these stories. They all enjoy these stories. And they always get a lot out of them. And so, yeah, that has also led me to think about why children like these scary stories, why they like these spooky things. And I found in my research an article written by author Kevin Scott. He is a New York Times bestselling writer. He writes uh, novels, he writes um, screenplays, he writes all sorts of things. Um, I have just, in the sake of transparency, I have interacted with him previously on Twitter, um, although he wouldn't remember me. Um, but he recounted a time that he was doing a library visit and then a book signing. And there was a mum who was standing in front of him and did exactly what I was always worried about. Um, which was complain about the book that he had chosen to read at this library visit. Um, he says that he had led a workshop about spooky stories and malignant monsters to an excitable gang of middle grade readers. Uh, he had read out this spooky passage from one of his stories and then had created a horror story with the group. Uh, the mum in question, the mum who was confronting him, had come in at the end of the session and, and didn't like what she had seen. Uh, she was worried that her son would have nightmares, that he was scared by the discussion about vampires and werewolves and zombies. And, and you know, she was worried about what her child had been exposed to, which is understandable, which is natural. Nobody can blame her for that. Um, Kevin himself says, I understood her concern. I have two daughters, and when they were younger, I used to keep an eye on what they were watching and reading. And yet here I am, a writer who has made a career writing stories to scare kids through universes such as Doctor Who and Star Wars. 
So it's interesting that that Kevin has been through that journey, that he understands that parents might be worried about what their children are consuming, but he creates this scary content. And he goes on in this article to talk about why. And the first thing he says, I think is the most impactful in the whole of this article. He says, we live in a scary world. And that's true. That's true. As adults, the world is a scary place. There's all sorts of stuff going on in the world right now. Lots of things that I won't talk about um, because this is not the time, this is not the place, and I am not well enough informed to talk about them. But there are all sorts of things going on that we are scared of. Children are also scared because children know lots of the things that are going on in the world and they have their own issues going on in their little microcosm worlds, in their schools, in their friendship groups, in their after-school clubs, whatever it might be. And they have almost no control over any aspect of their life. We know as adults that when we're feeling particularly scared, one of the things that we try and do is gain control over something, anything. Um, I was watching a vlogger earlier this week who was talking about how her therapist had been through her issues with food with her. And it talked about how when she suffered a bereavement, um, she started to overeat, not necessarily as a gut emotional reaction, but because her portion sizes, the amount of food she was taking in was something she could control. And in her grief, she felt like she was out of control. She hadn't been able to control the loss of this parent, so she started to control her food. But children don't have that. Children have almost no control over anything. Um, there was a meme that I saw um, on Monday or Tuesday that said something like, um, being a baby must be absolutely terrifying. Imagine going to sleep in your own house and waking up in Target. Now, if you're not sure, Target is an American um, supermarket come all things shop. It's kind of like, um, it's like Walmart, it's like Asda. Okay, so you can find just about everything there. And that meme kind of encapsulates it, because you can't even, as a child, uh, you can't even necessarily go to sleep in your own bed and assume that you will be able to wake up when you want to in your own bed. There is very little control. So children do live in a very scary world. No matter how safe we try and make it for them, that lack of control is quite scary. Um, The kind of scares that exist in, in books are safe scares. They are ways that children can explore and regulate their emotions in a way that is safe. Um, Kevin goes on to say in this article that if a child chooses a scary book and it gets too scary for them, they will self-regulate, they will close the book and they will read something else. So that is a, a fear over which they have control. 
It's also a fear through which they are entertained. He says, a scary story is the literary version of a roller coaster. You strap yourself in and are sent on a thrilling ride that quickens your pulse. Your stomach lurches and your fingers tingle. Then when it's over, nine times out of 10, you laugh. You've just pushed yourself to the edge of your comfort zone all without being in actual danger. And again, that's very, very true. Children can get the adrenaline rush of being scared, you know, in the same way that many adults chase that adrenaline rush by jumping out of planes um, without leaving the safety of their little plastic seat in your classroom. Uh, He says, we live in a scary world, especially for kids. There's so much they don't understand. They are full of emotions that confound most adults. They experience fear and anger. They can be frustrated or nervous or jealous. They are let down and they have to cope with rejection and disappointment. And as I've said before on the show, one of the reasons that children react so emotionally to so many things and one of the reasons that things seem like the end of the world to the children is because oftentimes it is as adults our emotions become much more stable and much less intense i suppose because we're used to these things it's one of the reasons why death why grief why loss is one of the the big gut punches that we have because it's not something that we experience often in our lives so we don't learn how to regulate it whereas all of the the smaller day-to-day things you know being let down by somebody uh somebody breaking a promise um falling out with a friend all of those things are things that we've experienced quite often unfortunately over our lives. And so we've learnt how to deal with those things. Children haven't. Children are experiencing these things for the first time, or the second time, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, or whatever it might be. But they haven't been through it enough to understand that they will survive, that they will get through it. So they have all of these feelings that they can't really control because they haven't had the same practice that we have. But scary stories, they they give them an opportunity to experience these things, to learn to control these emotions, to control these responses without actually being in danger, while being in a completely safe space. Scary stories, Kevin says, help kids learn how to deal with the real world. They are a way to acknowledge that life isn't always easy and to learn that it's okay to be scared. Monsters are fun, but they should help us understand scary situations and how to cope with them. I hope that no one reading his books um, ever has to live through their home planet being blown up or finds themselves being hunted by inhuman creatures of living metal. Um, And so because these things are so outlandish, because they are so outside of anything that can really happen, children can allow themselves to be in the scary situation knowing that they are completely safe. So it's it's a rehearsal for when something happens, because nothing, as far as they're aware, nothing that they will ever experience, and hopefully nothing that they will ever experience, will be as bad as their home planet being blown up or being chased by monsters of living metal. 
Uh, however, he says, I would like to think that kids reading the series will understand a little bit more about the importance of working together to find solutions for seemingly insurmountable problems, or how to dig deep to find the courage to get through something that usually makes their palms go clammy. Scary stories give us a chance to examine what we're afraid of, to talk about it, and to shine a light on negative emotions rather than just bury them deep inside. And I think that's the important part. And I think sometimes as educators, that's something that we get wrong. I think that's something that parents oftentimes get wrong, is the fact that we let a child read a book, they close the book, put it back on the bookshelf, and then get a new one. And there's no discussion of the book. Or if there is, particularly in schools, it's a comprehension discussion to make sure that they had actually understood what they had read. There's very, there are very few opportunities to get children to talk about how books have made them feel, what they've learnt. As adults, we quite often don't take the opportunities to talk about how books make us feel. Even in book groups, you know, you will sit down and discuss the book, but quite often it will be to pick out themes and to kind of attack it from a literary way instead of talking about how you felt about it, instead of creating that knowledge, creating that interpretation of the book that is based on your own experience. Now, quite often, that's a time thing. School days are jam-packed, parents are very busy. You know, there isn't always time to sit and talk to our children about what they're reading, but they could always journal about what they're reading. I think quite often about reading records. Um, and how we send our primary children home with reading records. Uh, sometimes even in Key Stage 3, we might send them home with a reading record and the child writes down the book um, that they're reading, their parent signs it, maybe writes some comments and that's it. But actually, if we were to treat reading records like a reading journal or we were to replace reading records with reading journals, um, and, you know, I talked on last week's show about how much I love a good notebook. This is not me trying to um, trying to justify having millions of notebooks, although it, it does. Um, but if we were to replace reading records with reading journals where children could write down um, how the book made them feel, if we could teach them how to keep commonplace books, so in their reading journal they wrote down uh, quotes that they found interesting or funny, um, you know, and we taught them to actually engage with the texts that they were reading. Um, not only might they find a deeper enjoyment of reading, and that is something we're always trying to find for children, is how to make them enjoy reading a lot more. Um, it would also mean that they were digesting the books properly, that they were examining what they're afraid of, what they enjoy. They could learn a bit more about themselves through the books that they are that they are taking in. So that's what uh, that's what Kevin Scott has to say um, about his experience with a parent. Now he does at the end he brings it back round to his story, um, and I will read out to you what the lady ended up saying because this is quite a nice way to bookend this particular story and to allay any fears of teachers who might have the same fears that I did about sharing scary stories with their class. He says, back in the library, I listened to the lady's concerns and talked to her about the books she enjoyed as a child. Did she read anything scary? 
No, she said, before changing her mind. She told me how much she had loved the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, but how the white witch had given her nightmares. The funny thing was, as she described the bad dreams, she smiled. And then she explained how she'd learned about the dangers of going with strangers from Edmund's experiences with the witch. Her son had never read the Narnia books and asked if they had any monsters in them, to which she said yes. He asked if he could read them. She left the library smiling, chatting with her boy about dangerous dragons, terrifying wolves and fearsome goblins. I hope they read many, many scary stories together. We are seeing at the moment a literary trend of giving monsters humanity. I was talking about this yesterday. Um, yesterday I attended an online conference about social justice in children's literature. Um, and one of the points that was raised was about how we are now centering the monsters who are written to be the symbolic other in these stories. And, you know, we, we see that all the time with, particularly at the moment, with retelling of Greek myths. How many books are there at the moment about Medusa that puts Medusa at the centre of that story and makes her the victim? And that is, of course, a perfectly, perfectly valid interpretation of that myth. You know, if we read it with modern sensibilities, then Medusa is the victim of so many things. But quite often what we do by humanising the monsters and by making them the protagonist rather than the antagonist, by making them the hero rather than the villain, we are taking away the opportunity for children to learn about dangerous things in a way that is safe for them. So I think we've got to be careful about what literary trends we are following and what literary trends we are allowing our children to consume. Because quite often, while they can do some good in one way, you know, they can, you know, reading about Medusa as a um, as a protagonist can teach empathy. It also takes away that safety of being scared of the monster, which is is equally important. We're now going to listen to an excerpt um, from a book on ghost stories. Um, this is called The Fascination of the Ghost Story, um, and it's by an author called Arthur B. Reeve. And I'm interested to hear what he has to say about why ghost stories are so fascinating to people and why they endure. The Fascination of the Ghost Story by Arthur B. Reeve. Coffee Break Collection 24. Ghosts, Ghouls, and spooky things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fascination of the Ghost Story What is the fascination we feel for the mystery of the ghost story? Is it of the same nature as the fascination which we feel for the mystery of the detective story? Of the latter fascination, the late Paul Armstrong used to say that it was because we are all as full of crime as Sing Sing, only we don't dare. Thus, may I ask, are we not fascinated by the ghost story because, no matter what may be the scientific or skeptical bent of our minds, in our inmost souls, secretly perhaps, we are as full of superstition as an obia man, 
only we don't let it loose who shall say that he is able to fling off lightly the inheritance of countless ages of superstition is there not a streak of superstition in all of us we laughed at the voodoo worshipper then create our own hoodoos our pet obsessions it has been said that man is incurably religious that if all religions were blotted out man would create a new religion man is incurably fascinated by the mysterious if all the ghost stories of the ages were blotted out man would invent new ones for do we not all stand in awe of that which we cannot explain of that which if it not be in our own experience is certainly recorded in the experience of others of that of which we know and can know nothing skeptical though one may be of the occult he must needs be interested in things that others believe to be objective that certainly are subjectively very real to them the ghost story is not born of science nor even of super science whatever that may be it is not of science at all it is of another sphere despite all that the psychic researchers have tried to demonstrate there are in life two sorts of people who for want of a better classification i may call the psychic and the non-psychic if i ask the psychic to close his eyes and i say to him horse he immediately visualizes a horse the other non-psychic does not i rather incline to believe that it is the former class who see ghosts or rather some of them the latter do not though they share interest in them the artists are of the visualizing class and in our more modern times it is the psychic who think in motion pictures or at least in a succession of still pictures however we explain the ghostly and supernatural whether we give it objective or merely subjective reality neither explanation prevents the non-psychic from being intensely interested in the visions of the psychic thus i am convinced that if we were all quite honest with ourselves whether we believe in or do not believe in ghosts at least we are all deeply interested in them there is in this interest something that makes all the world akin who does not feel a suppressed start at the creaking of furniture in the dark night who has not felt a shiver of goose flesh controlled only by an effort of will who in the dark has not had the feeling of some thing behind him and in spite of his conscious reasoning turn to look if there be any man who has not it may be that to him ghost stories have no fascination let him at least however be honest to every human being mystery appeals be it that of the crime cases on which a large part of yellow journalism is founded or be it in the cases of dupin of lecoq of sherlock holmes of arsene lupin of craig kennedy or a host of our other fiction mystery characters the appeal is the mystery the detective's case is solved at the end however but even in the case of a ghost story the underlying mystery remains in the ghost story we have the very quintessence of mystery authors publishers editors dramatists writers of motion pictures tell us that never before has there been such an intense and wide interest in mystery stories as there is today that in itself explains the interest in the super mystery story of the ghost and ghostly doings another element of mystery lies in such stories deeper and further back is the supreme mystery of life after death 
what impossible scorns the non-psychic as he listens to some ghost story to which doggedly replies the mind of the opposite type not so i believe because it is impossible the uncanny the unhealthy as in the master of such writing poe fascinates whether we will or no the imp of the perverse lures us on that is why we read with enthralled interest these excursions into the eerie unknown perhaps reading on till the mystic hour of midnight increases the creepy pleasure one might write a volume of analysis and appreciation of this aptly balanced anthology of ghost stories assembled here after years of reading and study by mr j l french foremost among the impressions that a casual reader will derive is the interesting fact just as in detective mystery stories so in ghost stories styles change each age each period has the ghost story peculiar to itself today there is a new style of ghost story gradually evolving once stories were of fairies fays trolls the little people of poltergeist and loup garou through various ages we have progressed to the ghost story of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries until today in the twentieth we are seeing a modern style which the new science is modifying materially high among the stories in this volume one must recognize the masterful art of algernon blackwood's the woman's ghost story i was interested in psychic things says the woman as she starts to tell her story simply with a sweep toward a climax that has the ring of the truth of fiction here perhaps we have the modern style of ghost story at its best times change as well as styles the man who went too far is of intense interest as an attempt to bring into our own times an interpretation of the symbolism underlying greek mythology applied to england of some years ago to see pan meant death hence in this story there is a philosophy of pantheism no me no you no it it is a mystical story with a storm scene in which is painted a picture that reminds one strongly of the fall of the house of usher with the frankly added words on him were marks of hoofs of a monstrous goat that had leaped on him uncompromising mysticism happy is the kipling section the phantom rickshaw if only that obiter dictum of ghost presence as kipling explains about the rift in the brain and a little bit of the dark world came through and pressed him to death then there are the racial styles of ghost stories the volume takes us from the banshees and other death warnings of ireland to a strange example of jewish mysticism in the silent woman mr french has been very wide in his choice giving us these as well as many examples from the literature of england and france finally as compiled from the newspapers as typically american many ghost stories of new york and other parts of the country strange that one should find humor in a subject so weird yet we find it take for instance defoe's old narrative the apparition of mrs veal it is a hoax nothing more of our own times is ellis parker butler's day ain't no ghosts showing example of the modern negro's racial heritage in our literature and on the stage the very idea of a darkie in a graveyard is mirth-provoking 
mr butler extracts some pithy philosophy from his darky boy i ain't scared of ghosts what am cause they ain't no ghosts but i just feel kind of uneasy about the ghosts what ain't humor is succeeded by pathos in the interval we find a sympathetic twist to the ghost story an actual desire to meet the dead it is not however to be compared for interest to the story of sheer terror as in bulwer lighton's the haunted and the haunters with the flight of the servant in terror the cowering of the dog against the wall the death of the dog its neck actually broken by the terror and all that go to make an experience in a haunted house what it should be thus at last we come to two of the stories that attempt to give a scientific explanation another phase of the modern style of ghost story one of these perhaps hardly modern as far as mere years are concerned is this same story of bulwer the haunted and the haunters besides being a rattling good old-fashioned terror of horror it attempts a new-fashioned scientific explanation it is enough to read and re-read it it is however the lamented ambrose pierce who has gone furthest in the science and the philosophy of the matter and in a very short story too splendidly titled the damned thing incredible exclaims the coroner at the inquest that is nothing to you sir replies the newspaper man who relates the experience and in these words expresses the true feelings about ghostly fiction that is nothing to you if i also swear that it is true but furthest of all in his scientific explanation not scientifically explaining away but in explaining the way goes pierce as he outlines a theory from the diary of the murdered man he picks out the following which we may treasure as a gem i am not mad there are colors that we cannot see and god help me the damn thing is of such a color this fascination of the ghost story have i made it clear as i write nearing midnight the bookcase behind me cracks i start and turn nothing there is a creak of a board in the hallway i know it is the cool night wind the uneven contraction of materials expanded in the heat of the day yet do i go into the darkness outside otherwise than alert it is this evolution of our sense of ghost terror ages of it that fascinates us can we with a few generations of modernism behind us throw it off with all our science and if we did shall we not then succeed only in abolishing the old-fashioned ghost story in creating a new scientific ghost story scientific yes but more something that has existed since the beginnings of intelligence in the human race perhaps you critic you say that the true ghost story originated in the age of shadowy candlelight and pine knot with her grotesqueries on the walls and in the unpenetrated darkness that the electric bulb and the radiator have dispelled that very thing on which for ages the ghost story has been built what no ghost stories would you take away our supernatural fiction by your paltry scientific explanation still will we gather about the storyteller then lie awake o nights seeing mocking figures arms akimbo defying all your science to crush the ghost story End of The Fascination of the Ghost Story
Now, of course, we denounce entirely some of the Victorian sensibilities there that Arthur Reeve was espousing and the way that he phrased some of his things. But what he actually had to say is very interesting and remains very pertinent, which is why I chose to include that section in the show today. Because there does seem to be something about the ghost story to which people are drawn. There does seem to be an innate, I don't know, I don't want to say spirituality about people because I know that lots of people will disagree with that. But there does seem to be this um, drawing of people towards things that are spooky, that are to do with death, that are to do with what happens next. And maybe it's a curiosity, maybe because it's the one big thing that we will never know is what happens after people die. Um, and and maybe it's it's that that draws people in rather than any kind of innate desire in humanity for some kind of religion or for some kind of spirituality. I don't know. I don't know. But I think it's very interesting to note that kind of even going back to the Victorian era when ghost stories were very popular, we are finding many of the same things that that we have talked about today, where people are being drawn to these stories, where people are being um, captivated by stories of ghosts, because it does seem to be something that is, is part of humanity, that is part of our nature. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So let's talk about the kind of children that we may wish to protect from the spooky stories. And, and those are the children who have already been through some kind of trauma in their lives. Trauma in Formed schooling is a hot button issue right now. It's something that is being talked about a lot. There are lots of courses popping up for teachers to take on it. All sorts of things going on with our young children, with our young people that we are taking into account as we educate them. And what I f have found interesting is this article by Dr. Amy Marshall, who is a licensed psychologist, um, entitled, Why Do Kids Like Creepy Things? And I'm kind of, I'm about to argue with myself, I think, because um, in the previous segment, I talked about how the current 
propensity for centering the monster is perhaps taking away from the idea that the monster is dangerous, the monster is scary, and so is taking away these things that um, that we feel our children should be learning. However, Dr. Marshall argues quite interestingly from the work that she has done with um, children who have experienced trauma is that they find themselves identifying with the, in inverted commas, monstrous characters. She says in this article, which I will tweet at the end of the show, she says, another theme I've noticed in my practice is that some kids with trauma history or who struggle with problem behaviors find themselves identifying with creepy characters like Pennywise the Clown or Slenderman. These children have some negative ideas about themselves that are commonly seen in fictional bad guys or they will relate to feeling disliked or unloved. So this is an instance where actually all of those things that, um, that I kind of framed negatively in the last segment could be a positive. If you've got a child who has experienced some kind of trauma, if you've got a child who you find um, identifies with the monster in the story, and you can then find stories like some of the Medusa retellings that I spoke of earlier, which center her as the hero of the story, then you might be able to begin to get the children or that child exploring how they are feeling, exploring why they identify that way, and exploring the fact that, you know, feeling lonely, feeling unloved, first of all, doesn't mean that you are. And secondly, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that that's how you are feeling right now in that moment. Um... Dr. Marshall goes on to say, quite interestingly, many parents or guardians have the impulse to tell the child that they aren't like that character or that they shouldn't relate to that character. I think it can be more helpful in this case to lean into what the child is telling you. They are communicating how they feel on the inside and rather than telling them that they are wrong, you can practice reframing or finding positive qualities about the character they are relating to. In this way, you validate the child's feelings, you demonstrate that you are listening to them, and you show them that they are lovable. Uh, these children also benefit from ongoing therapy to build self-esteem and to work through the underlying issues contributing to difficult behaviours, of course. But this could be one of the, the powers of literature, and this is perhaps one of the reasons why multiple tellings of stories, particularly ghost stories, is important because telling the same story from multiple perspectives gives children the opportunity to identify with multiple characters, to learn different things about themselves, and to learn that the character they identify with might be positioned one way in one story, but is seen by somebody else in a very different way. Medusa might be the monster in Perseus's story, but she is the heroine in her own. And she is the mother in Pegasus's story. And she is the victim in many of the retellings that have come ever since. And it's the same woman, it's the same character, it's the same monster, but viewed through different lenses. 
And I think that is a very good thing to teach children. That different people see the same um, the same person, the same situation in different ways and interpret it differently. And there isn't necessarily a right and a wrong. It's just how people interpret things. And that is something that we are losing these days. The, the ability to see things from different positions, the ability to understand that there are interpretations, even if we don't agree with them all. This is, of course, also where book journaling can be very useful. Because a child may not want to tell you that they are identifying with the monster in your story or in the monster in the story that they are reading, but they might happily write that down. Because sometimes it's easier to write things than it is to say them. So I think that's quite interesting. And I think there is very clearly no middle ground here. We can't not um, humanize the monsters so that children learn about scary things while also humanizing them so that the children identifying with them know that there is nothing wrong. You know, we can't have both. It has to be We can't not do either, I think, is what I am saying, or what I'm trying to say. We kind of have to do both. Um, it can't be one or the other. It has to be both, so that all the children reading these stories get out of it what they need. Um, you can tell that I was thinking on my feet there. But as you know, I don't mind changing my thinking on things. Um, it's one of the things that I like to do most here on the show is hear different viewpoints, read different things, even things that I find kind of as I am going through the internet while you are listening to the news, while you are listening to, to people read stories. Um, because interrogating my own knowledge, changing my own viewpoint is, is very important. It's very important. And I'm very happy to model that for you in the same way that I will model it for my children. Now, Friend of the show will know that I am at heart a classicist. Um, I love Greek and Roman mythology. So, of course, in this show today, I am going to talk to you about Greek and Roman ghost stories. In fact, one of the oldest extant ghost stories we have is a Roman... Well, sorry, one of the oldest extant haunted house stories we have is a Roman story. I talked about it on the show this time last year. Um, I talked about my translation of it. Um, I'm not going to, to go through that again with you, but they are, um, ghost stories are very popular, are very common in classical mythology. Um, and so we are going to <clears throat> listen to stories of haunting from Greek and Roman mythology, um, as written by Lacey Collison Morley. Chapter 3 of Greek and Roman Ghost Stories this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Greek and Roman Ghost Stories by Lacey Collison Morley. Chapter 3. Stories of Haunting. In a letter to Sura, the younger Pliny gives us what may be taken as a prototype of all later haunted house stories. At one time in Athens, there was a roomy old house where nobody could be induced to live. In the dead of night, the sound of clanking chains would be heard, distant at first, proceeding doubtless from the garden behind or the inner court of the house. 
then gradually drawing nearer and nearer, till at last there appeared the figure of an old man with a long beard, thin and emaciated, with chains on his hands and feet. The house was finally abandoned and advertised to be let or sold at an absurdly low price. The philosopher Athenodorus read the notice on his arrival in Athens, but the smallness of the sum asked aroused his suspicions. However, as soon as he had heard the story, he took the house. He had his bed placed in the front court, close to the main door, dismissed his slaves, and prepared to pass the night there, reading and writing, in order to prevent his thoughts from wandering to the ghost. He worked on for some time without anything happening, but at last the clanking of chains was heard in the distance. Athenodorus did not raise his eyes or stop his work, but kept his attention fixed and listened. The sounds gradually drew nearer, and finally entered the room where he was sitting. Then he turned round and saw the apparition. It beckoned him to follow, but he signed to it to wait and went on with his work. Not till it came and clanked its chains over his very head would he take up a lamp and follow it. The figure moved slowly forward, seemingly weighted down with its heavy chains, until it reached an open space in the courtyard. There it vanished. Athenodorus marked the spot with leaves and grass, and on the next day the ground was dug up in the presence of a magistrate, where the skeleton of a man with some rusty chains was discovered. The remains were buried with all ceremony, and the apparition was no more seen. Lucian tells the same story in the Philosudus, with some ridiculous additions, thoroughly in keeping with the surroundings. An almost exactly similar story has been preserved by Robert Woodrow, the indefatigable collector, in a notebook which appears to have intended to be the foundation of a scientific collection of marvellous tales. Woodrow died early in the 18th century. Gilbert Rule, the founder and first principal of Edinburgh University, once reached a desolate inn in a lonely spot on the Grampians. The inn was full, and they were obliged to make him up a bed in a house nearby that had been vacant for thirty years. He walked some time in the room, says Woodrow, and committed himself to God's protection and went to bed. There were two candles left on the table, and these he put out. There was a large, bright fire remaining. He had not been long in bed, till the room door is opened, and an apparition in the shape of a country tradesman came in, and opened the curtains without speaking a word. Mr. Rule was resolved to do nothing till it should speak or attack him, but lay still with full composure, committing himself to the divine protection and conduct. The apparition went to the table, lighted the two candles, brought them to the bedside, and made some steps toward the door. Looking still to the bed, as if it would have Mr. Rule rising and following. Mr. Rule lay still till he should see his way further cleared. Then the apparition, who the whole time spoke none, took an effectual way to raise the doctor. He carried back the candles to the table and went to the fire, and with the tongs took down the kindled coals and laid them on the deal chamber floor. The doctor then thought it time to rise and put on his clothes, in the time of which the spectre laid up the coals again in the chimney, and going to the table lifted the candles and went to the door, opened it, still looking to the principal, as he would have him follow the candles, which he now, thinking there was something extraordinary in the case, after looking to God for direction, inclined to do. 
the apparition went down some steps with the candles and carried them into a long trance, at the end of which there was a stair which carried down to a low room. The spectre went down and stopped, and set down the lights on the lowest step of the stair, and straight disappears. The learned principal, continues Burton, whose courage and coolness deserve the highest commendation, lighted himself back to bed with the candles, and took the remainder of his rest undisturbed. Being a man of great sagacity, on ruminating over his adventure, he informed the sheriff of the county that he was much of the mind there was murder in the case. The stone whereon the candles were placed was raised, and there the plain remains of a human body were found, and bones, to the conviction of all. It was supposed to be an old affair, however, and no traces could be got of the murderer. Rule undertook the functions of the detective, and pressed into the service the influence of his own profession. He preached a great sermon on the occasion to which all the neighbouring people were summoned, and behold, in the time of his sermon, an old man near eighty years was awakened, and fell a-weeping, and before the whole company acknowledged that, at the building of that house, he was the murderer. The main features of the story have changed very little in the course of the ages, except in the important point of the conviction of the murderer, which would have been affected in a very different way in a Greek story. Doubtless a similar tale could be found in the folklore of almost any nation. Plutarch relates how, in his native city of Caronea, a certain daemon had been murdered in some baths. Ghosts were considered to haunt the spot ever afterwards, and mysterious groans were heard, so that at last the doors were walled up. And to this very day, he continues, those who live in the neighbourhood imagine they see strange sights, and are terrified with cries of sorrow. It is quite clear from Plautus that ghost stories, even if not taken very seriously, aroused a widespread interest in the average Roman of his day, just as they do in the average Briton of our own. They were doubtless discussed in a half-joking way. The apparitions were generally believed to frighten people, just as they are at present, though the well-authenticated stories of such occurrences would seem to show that genuine ghosts, or whatever one likes to call them, have the power of paralysing fear. In the Mostellaria, Plautus uses a ghost as a recognised piece of supernatural machinery. The regulation father of Roman comedy has gone away on a journey, and in the meantime his son has, as usual, almost reached the end of his father's fortune. The father comes back unexpectedly, and the son turns in despair to his faithful slave Tranio for help. Tranio is equal to the occasion, and undertakes to frighten the inconvenient parent away again. He gives an account of an apparition that has been seen, and has announced that it is the ghost of a stranger from overseas, who has been dead for six years. Here I must dwell, it had declared, for the gods of the lower world will not receive me, seeing that I died before my time. My host murdered me, his guest, villain that he was, for the gold that I carried, and secretly buried me, without funeral rites, in this house. Be gone hence, therefore, for it is accursed and unholy ground. The story is enough for the father. He takes the advice, and does not return till Tranio and his dutiful son are quite ready for him. Great battlefields are everywhere believed to be haunted. Tacitus recites how, when Titus was besieging Jerusalem, armies were seen fighting in the sky, and at a much later date, after a great battle against Attila and the Huns, under the walls of Rome, the ghosts of the dead fought for three days and three nights, and the clash of their arms was distinctly heard. 
Marathon is no exception to the rule. Pausanias says that any night you may hear horses neighing and men fighting there. To go on purpose to see the sight never brought good to any man, but with him who unwittingly lights upon it, the spirits are not angry. He adds that the people of Marathon worship the men who fell in battle as heroes, and who could be more worthy of such an honour than they. The battle itself was not without its marvellous side. Epizelus the Athenian used to relate how a huge hoplite, whose beard overshadowed all his shield, stood over against him in the thick of the fight. The apparition passed him by and killed the man next to him, but Epizelus came out of the battle blind and remained so for the rest of his life. Plutarch also relates a place in Boeotia where a battle had been fought, that there is a stream running by, and that people imagine that they hear panting horses in the roaring waters. But the strangest account of the habitual haunting of great battlefields is to be found in Philostratus's Heroica, which represents the spirits of the Homeric heroes as still closely connected with Troy and its neighbourhood. How far the stories are based on local tradition is impossible to say. They are told by a vine-dresser, who declares he lives under the protection of Prositulus. At one time he was in danger of being violently ousted from all his property, when the ghost of Prositulus appeared to the would-be despoiler in a vision and struck him blind. The great man was so terrified at this event that he carried his depredations no further, and the vine-dresser has since continued to cultivate what remained of his property under the protection of the hero, with whom he lives on most intimate terms. Prositulus often appears to him while he is at work and has long talks with him, and he keeps off wild beasts and disease from the land. Not only Prositulus, but also his men, and, in fact, virtually all of the giants of mighty bone and bold emprise who fought round Troy, can be seen on the plain at night, clad like warriors with nodding plumes. The inhabitants are keenly interested in these apparitions, and well they may be, as so much depends upon them. If the heroes are covered with dust, a drought is impending. If with sweat, they foreshadow rain. Blood upon their arms means a plague, but if they show themselves without any distinguishing mark, all will be well. Though the heroes are dead, they cannot be insulted with impunity. Ajax was popularly believed, owing to the form taken by his madness, to be especially responsible for any misfortune that might befall flocks and herds. On one occasion some shepherds, who had bad luck with their cattle, surrounded his tomb and abused him, bringing up all the weak points in his earthly career recorded by Homer. At last they went too far for his patience, and a terrible voice was heard in the tomb, and the clash of armour. The offenders fled in terror, but came to no harm. On another occasion, some strangers were playing at draughts near his shrine, when Ajax appeared and begged them to stop, as the game reminded him of Palamedes. Hector was a far more dangerous person. Maximus of Tyre says that the people of Ilium often see him bounding over the plain at dead of night in flashing armour, a truly Homeric picture. Maximus cannot, indeed, boast of having seen Hector, though he also has had his visions vouchsafed him. He had seen Castor and Pollux, like twin stars, above his ship, steering it through a storm. Aesculapius also he has seen, not in a dream by Hercules, but with his waking eyes. But to return to Hector, Philostratus says that one day an unfortunate boy insulted him in the same way in which the shepherds had treated Ajax. 
Homer, however, did not satisfy this boy, and as a parting shaft he declared that the statue in Ilium did not really represent Hector, but Achilles. Nothing happened immediately, but not long afterwards, while the boy was driving a team of ponies, Hector appeared in the form of a warrior in a brook which was, as a rule, so small as not even to have a name. He was heard shouting in a foreign tongue as he pursued the boy in the stream, finally overtaking and drowning him with his ponies. The bodies were never afterwards recovered. Philostratus gives us a quantity of details about the Homeric heroes, which the vine-dresser has picked up in his talks with Protosalus. Most of the heroes can be easily recognised. Achilles, for instance, enters into conversation with various people, and goes out hunting. He can be recognised by his height, and his beauty, and his bright armour. And as he rushes past, he is usually accompanied by a whirlwind, even after death. Then we hear the story of the White Isle. Helen and Achilles fall in love with one another, although they had never met, the one hidden in Egypt, the other fighting before Troy. There was no place near Troy suited for their eternal life together, so Thetis appealed to Poseidon to give them an island home of their own. Poseidon consented, and the White Isle rose up in the Black Sea, near the mouth of the Danube. There Achilles and Helen, the manliest of men and the most feminine of women, first met and first embraced, and Poseidon himself, and Amphrite, and all the Nereids, and as many river gods and spirits as dwelt near the Euxene and Maeotis, came to the wedding. The island is thickly covered with white trees and with elms, which grow in regular order around the shrine, and on it there dwell certain white birds, fragrant of the salt sea, which Achilles is said to have tamed to his will, so that they keep the glades cool, fanning them with their wings and scattering spray as they fly along the ground, scarce rising above it. To men sailing over the broad bosom of the sea the island is holy when they disembark, for it lies like a hospitable home to their ships. But neither those who sail thither, nor the Greeks and barbarians living round the Black Sea, may build a house upon it, and all who anchor and sacrifice there must go on board at sunset. No man may pass the night upon the isle, and no woman may even land there. If the wind is favourable, ships must sail away. If not, they must put out and anchor in the bay and sleep on board. For at night men say that Achilles and Helen drink together, and sing of each other's love, and of the war, and of Homer. Now that his battles are over, Achilles cultivates the gift of song he had received from Calliope. Their voices ring out clear and godlike over the water, and the sailors sit trembling with emotion as they listen. Those who had anchored there declared that they had heard the neighing of horses, and the clash of arms, and shouts such as are raised in battle. Maximus of Tyre also describes the island, and tells how sailors have often seen a fair-haired youth dancing a war-dance in golden armour upon it, and how once, when one of them unwittingly slept there, Achilles woke him, and took him to his tent and entertained him. Patroclus poured the wine, and Achilles played the lyre, while Thetis herself is said to have been present with a choir of other deities. If they anchor to the north or the south of the island, and a breeze springs up which makes the harbours dangerous, Achilles warns them and bids them change their anchorage and avoid the wind. Sailors relate how, when they first behold the island, they embrace each other and burst into tears of joy. Then they put in and kiss the land and go to the temple to pray and to sacrifice to Achilles. 
victims stand ready of their own accord at the altar, according to the size of the ship and the number of those on board. Pausanias also mentions the White Isle. On one occasion, Leonimus, while leading the people of Croton against the Italian Locretians, attacked the spot where he was informed that Ajax Oleus, on whom the people of Locris had called for help, was posted in the van, according to Conon, who, by the way, calls the hero Otolian. When the people of Croton went to war, they also left a vacant space for Ajax in the forefront of their line. However this may be, Leonimus was wounded in the breast, and when the wound refused to heal and weakened him considerably, he applied to Delphi for advice. The god told him to sail to the White Isle, where Ajax would heal him of his wound. Thither, therefore, he went, and was duly healed. On his return he described what he had seen, how Achilles was now married to Helen, and it was Leomaeus whom told Stetichorus that his blindness was due to Helen's wrath, and thus induced him to write the palinode. Achilles himself is once said to have appeared to a trader who frequently visited the island. They talked of Troy, and then the hero gave him wine and bade him sail away and fetch a certain Trojan maiden, whom was a slave of a citizen of Ilium. The trader was surprised at the request, and ventured to ask why he wanted a Trojan slave. Achilles replied that it was because she was of the same race as Hector and his ancestors, and of the blood of the sons of Priam and Dardanus. The trader thought that Achilles was in love with the girl, whom he duly brought with him on his next visit to the island. Achilles thanked him, and bade him keep her on board the ship, doubtless because women were not allowed to land. In the evening he was entertained by Achilles and Helen, and his host gave him a large sum of money, promising to make him his guest friend, and to bring luck to his ship and his business. At daybreak Achilles dismissed him, telling him to leave the girl on the shore. When they had gone about a furlong from the island, a horrible cry from the maiden reached their ears, and they saw Achilles tearing her to pieces, rending her limb from limb. In this brutal savage it is impossible to recognise Homer's chivalrous hero, who sacrificed the success of a ten years' war, fought originally for the recovery of one woman, to his grief at the loss of another, and has thus made it possible to describe the Iliad as the greatest love poem ever written. One cannot help but feel that Pindar's Isle of the Blessed, whither he was brought by Thetis, whose mother's prayer had moved the heart of Zeus, to dwell with Cadmus and Peleus, is Achilles' true home or the Isle of the Heroes of All Time, described by Caraducci, where King Lear sits telling Oedipus of his sufferings, and Cordelia calls to Antigone, Come, my Greek sister, we shall sing of peace to our fathers. Helen and Assault, silent and thoughtful, roam under the shade of the myrtles, while the setting sun kisses their golden hair with its reddening rays. Helen gazes across the sea, but King Mark opens his arms to Assault, and the fair head sinks on the mighty beard. Clytemnestra stands by the shore with the Queen of the Scots. They bathe their white arms in the waves, but the waves recoil, swollen with red blood, while the wailing of the hapless women echoes across the rocky strand. Among these heroic souls, Shelley alone of modern poets, that titan spirit in a maiden's form, may find a place, according to Caraducci, caught up by Sophocles from the living embrace of Thetis. End of chapter 3. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia. So, even back in time, 
people have been fascinated by ghost stories. And that over the last kind of 45 minutes is what we've been exploring. This idea that, that people of all ages, of all races, in all countries, in all different time periods have been interested by these scary stories. And of course, children are people. Our young people are people. And they are just as fascinated, just as intrigued by these creepy stories as the Victorians were, as the Greeks and the Romans were, as the members of the Byzantine Empire. You know, wherever we go, we hear these scary stories, sometimes religious, at sometimes secular, sometimes contemporary. One of the things that, that really strikes me about the Greek and Roman ghost stories is how they are all Greek and Roman ghosts. You know, the hoplite in his armor, the soldier in his armor, the, the heroes that they knew. Modern ghost stories don't tend to give us ghosts in jeans and a hoodie. They give us young Victorian children more often than not, which I find really interesting because somewhere along the line there has been a shift in what the ghost story actually means and what it what it entails. But I think ultimately what I have learnt in my shallow dive into spooky stories is that they are good for children. They are good to help children manage all sorts of emotions in a, a safe environment and that they are just a part of what it is to be human. And that is what we should be encouraging in our young people. Thank you, as always, for joining me for breakfast this morning. I very much appreciate it. I have loved being here with you. Do stay tuned. We have all sorts of cool stuff happening on the TTI network over the coming week. And if I don't interact with you before then, I will speak to you next Saturday when we will be talking about Guy Fawkes. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your weekend and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.